Thank you so much to Podcorn for sponsoring this week's episode. I've been using Podcorn to help find sponsors for my podcast, and their website makes it so easy. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing sponsorship opportunities such as host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly. You don't have to worry about any middleman, and the best part is, is you never give up the rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is there to support you at every step and ensure you're protected and compensated for the work that you do for brands. Start monetizing your podcast today by signing up for Podcorn using the link in the episode's description. In Northern Thailand exists a youth soccer team known as the Mu Pa or Wild Boars. Ranging from ages 11 to 17, 12 of the Wild Boars players and their coach Ek decided to go exploring in a popular cave system after completing practice one morning. However, heavy rains soon started falling and as water levels rose, they became trapped. Cave divers, military teams, and volunteers began flocking to the area to try to rescue the young boys and their coach. As days passed, the rain refused to let up, which only increased the challenges of finding and rescuing the team. Find out what exactly happened on this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. Hi everyone, I'm your host Alex and welcome back to Narcosis Into the Deep. This week I'm covering the Tom Wang cave system and the incident that occurred between June 23rd and July 10th, 2018. The Wild Boars soccer team had very tight bonds, especially with their coach. They often did team building trips and on one occasion they had rode their bikes up to the Tom Lang cave system and by the time they reached the caves it was already getting late and they decided not to enter them at this time but Coach Eck had promised them that they would return again soon. On Saturday, June 23rd, 2018, at 10 a.m., the team played a warm-up game of soccer about 2 miles or 3.2 kilometers from the caves. After they finished their practice game, they biked over to the caves since everyone was curious and wanted to explore them. After reaching the caves at around noon, Coach Eck and the 12 boys, Titan, Mark, Mick, Dom, Pong, Dull, Turn, Note, Nick, T, Knight, and Boo had about four hours to explore the caves before some of the boys needed to be home. They parked their bikes outside the caves and some even removed their cleats before heading inside. The Tom Lang Nong Nang Caves, translated to the Royal Cave of the Reclining Woman, are an international attraction. From the main entrance, there are six chambers before reaching a T-junction. The cave then splits into two paths. The right path becomes extremely narrow and isn't often explored, while the left path is more open and easily accessible. After turning left, there are at least three more chambers before the cave ends or becomes inaccessible. I'll be posting some maps on our Instagram page, so be sure to head over to at narcosispod, P-O-D, to see the maps. While the caves are an international attraction, for four months out of the years, visitors are encouraged to avoid exploring them. 
storm systems gather moisture over the Indian Ocean and sweep across Thailand. These monsoons pour down sheets of driving rain and the falling water travels through the rocks creating flash floods that inundate the cave. There's a sign propped up outside the cave's entrance warning visitors to not enter between July to November. But since it was still June and the previous year's rains didn't begin until mid-July, the team and their coach believed that they were safe and entered the caves. Guided by their flashlights, the team ventured further and further into the caves. About three hours later, they reached an area called the Groundwater City. The chamber was filled with water and they had to decide if they should keep going or turn back. Although they were all decent swimmers, they decided it was a sign that they should head back. It was getting late and none of the kids wanted to anger their parents by returning home past curfew. As the team began to turn around, the path split into two directions, and they weren't sure where to go to get back. Noticing the rising water, Boo asked, are we lost? The boys started getting scared. Scared that they might be lost or trapped in the caves. Scared that they wouldn't return home on time and their parents might be angry. None of them had told their parents that they were planning to explore the caves after the morning game. But Coach Eck reassured the team. He said, quote, There's only one way back, the way we came from, end quote. Eck plunged into the water, determined to find the return route, but when he returned unsuccessful, the group began trying to dig out a channel for the water, trying to redirect it so they could see their exit path. After what felt like about an hour, they knew they weren't getting anywhere, so instead they decided that they should try to find a dry place to rest. After all, one of the older kids suggested the rising water might just be the tide, and maybe they can wait until the tide goes back out so they can exit. Coach Eck, as cheerful as ever, agreed with the boy. Retreating back into the cave, they found sand mounds that would keep them dry and clean drinking water dripped from the walls and the stalactites. Coach Eck knew that they were lost in a pitch black cave with no way to reach the outside world, no food, and rising water. But for the moment, they were safe. Outside the cave at around 9 p.m., someone asked one of the Wild Boars players, a member who had not attended the cave exploration that day, where Coach Egg might be. The boy informed them that the team and Coach Egg had headed to the caves. After contacting authorities of the missing persons, a local authority member confirmed that the team's bikes and cleats were neatly parked and lined up right outside the cave's entrance. Families, friends, and local authorities rushed to the caves, calling their sons' names into the caves. They were only greeted with their echoing voices slowly fading into silence. Around midnight, the continuing rain was making the cave entrance impassable. Local divers realized quickly that they could be of no use and left. But by morning, more and more concerned people had arrived to help. One person had told a BBC reporter, quote, no one really had any idea what to do, end quote. Some brought pumps and pipes, whatever they had on hand, to try to pull the water out of the cave. But these attempts were futile. It was like trying to divert a river with a garden hose. The local governor contacted the Royal Thai Navy and requested assistance from the SEALs. If anyone could manage the cave, 
which is considered one of the five most dangerous caves in the world when flooded, he thought it would be the seals. A lot of divers worldwide use their scuba diving gear in open water. Then there's cave divers. Cave divers are a different breed, and cave diving is a niche within a niche. While the SEALs would definitely bring the courage, the discipline, and the gas tanks needed for the search, they were not among the small group of people worldwide who are experts at diving through flooded caves. William Stone, an expert American cave diver and cave rescuer, has said that the best cave rescues are the ones you never hear about. Only the key rescuers are allowed on the site and they do their best work unseen and undisturbed. No one wants random spectators or anxious family members in a hospital operating room, just the trained nurses and doctors. However, the scene at the cave's entrance was just the opposite. By the end of June 24th, the day after the boys' exploration had began, as many as 1,600 print, video, radio, and TV reporters along with their sound and camera crews, were sitting outside the cave's entrance. To feed the ever-growing group of spectators, a group of volunteers set up kitchens to cook, another carried in tubs filled with hot water and electric washers and dryers to clean everyone's clothes, and a third group of volunteers set up chairs. Some volunteers even began looking above ground to see if there were any gaps in the rocks that could be expanded. The outburst of volunteering the free services and food that people provided was a testament to the generosity and goodwill of the Thai people. But day by day, the cave filled with more and more people using their skills trying to help. At the time, it was unclear whether all of this effort could bring anyone closer to finding the boys or whether it was making the rescue impossible. Monday, June 25th, now two days later, Rain continued to blanket the hills, filling the interlocking chambers of the cave system with water. The limestone inside the cave was edged in sharp rocks. Sharp stalactites loomed from the ceiling, and stalagmites thrusted up like miniature mountains, creating more hazards for the rescuers and divers. By Monday morning, the Thai Navy SEALs managed to penetrate further into the cave system than any of the local divers. They entered the large cavern known as Chamber 3, and an hour's dive from there, they finally reached the T-junction, which was now 6 feet or 1.8 meters underwater. The continuous rain outside the cave continued to add more and more challenges to the rescue. However, cave divers from around the world, from Ireland to Singapore, from Argentina to Canada, People were rushing to these caves, wanting to be of any assistance. By Tuesday, June 26, the T-junction was now completely underwater from the rising levels and Chamber 3 was beginning to flood. Soon there would be little air inside the chambers and even the divers would be in danger. Knowing the rescuers would need a team of experienced cave divers and cave rescuers, the Thai government contacted British divers Rick Stanton, John Volenthan, and Rob Harper. The Thailand government also reached out to U.S. military and requested a team of experts to help map out a strategy and hand out tasks. 
They realized all of this effort would fail unless it was organized and given structure. But deep in the cave, Coach Eck and the team were completely unaware of the mayhem going on outside. They couldn't hear the people above them or the hundreds of people at the mouth of the cave or even the pumps running 24 hours a day. Coach Eck felt responsible for putting the team in danger and he was going to do anything to help them survive. One thing Coach Eck did was teach the boys how to meditate. Earlier in his life, Eck had received Buddhist training and learned how to meditate, a crucial survival skill that he now shared with the boys. They were able to focus on their thoughts, feelings, and needs. This mindful meditation helped calm, relax, and center each person. Of course, they were hungry, scared, and worried about having not told their parents about the cave trip. But meditation helped each one keep the fear away and be in the present. They couldn't control the future, but they could relax their minds, and at every moment, they could see their coach's cheerful face and feel his caring attention watching them, guiding them, and holding them close, offering protection. Coach Eck also provided another crucial survival tactic. He gave the boys a goal to work towards. They would take turns digging at the cave's walls, trying to dig towards an exit. Dig, rest, drink, meditate. Dig, rest, drink, meditate. Having a common goal and a sense of purpose helped keep up the spirits of the young boys. On Wednesday, June 27th, now four days later, Rick, John, and Rob, the requested team of divers, had arrived to the caves. The challenge, the necessity, was to cross the T-junction, but two streams of water met there, making the current strong and impassable. At this point, no member of the rescue team had seen the boys and some began to question if they were alive or even in the caves at all. Rick and John made an attempt to reach the T-junction, but the dirty, turbulent water was too difficult even for them and they turned back. On their second trip, they were able to reach Chamber 3, about halfway to the T-junction. Prior to Rick and John's attempts, volunteers had been laying more water pump lines and supposedly everyone had made their way out after stocking the caves. But the divers had come upon four frightened water pump workers. The men had been stuck in the chamber for a full day, trapped by the flows that had risen while they worked. The divers made an important decision. They would dive the men out in relays using the tanks and breathing apparatuses available in the cave. Clutching the guide rope in one hand, the diver hugged a worker in the other. He gave a mouthpiece linked to gas and dove into the water. All the way back, the workers thrashed in the water and it was like a, quote, underwater wrestling match, end quote. But one by one, the men made it across and successfully saved the four trapped workers. Saving the four workers sparked something that was desperately needed, hope. In saving the four workers, they learned that even in such a dangerous cave, with people who had no diving experience, a rescue might be possible for the young soccer team and their coach. 
Friday, June 29th, was the third consecutive day of five to seven inches of rainfall, putting the dive teams at a standstill. With the strong currents and horrible visibility, there was no way anyone could make any advance down the cave system. Now some 10,000 people from all over Thailand and the rest of the world were at the caves. Talks of penetrating the rocks above the caves were discussed, but there was no recent precise maps of the cave. A hole drilled too close to the boys might endanger them, and too far would be useless. Since the rescue team could only guess the location, placing and drilling at the correct spot would be more of blind luck than skill. Inside the cave, as the team continued to drink, rest, dig, meditate, all of a sudden, they heard something. A whistle. The whistle told the boys something that they had believed all along. People knew that they were missing and they were on the way to rescue them. They trusted that they would be saved. On Saturday, June 30th, a full week after the boys had first entered the cave, Thai SEALs were continuing to work with filling Chamber 3 with supplies. Over several days, they managed to bring in a hundred gas tanks, tents, lights, food, and even KFC fried chicken. The base camp set up in Chamber 3 meant that expert cave divers could once again attempt to lay line up to and across the T-junction and reach the boys. On Monday, July 2nd, the divers had finally passed the T-junction. Thai seals were laying line, but the experienced cave divers were concerned that the process was taking too long. No one knew how much longer the trapped boys, however many that were still alive after nine days without food, could survive. As the divers continued rotating between the team's laying line, they finally made it to Pattaya Beach inside the caves, which was just past Chamber 8. Looking inside, they saw nothing. No sign of Ek and the team, so they swam on. They entered Chamber 9, and the smell of human scent, some described like an outhouse, hit them hard. There they are! We found them! Rick yelled. His voice echoed in the chamber, but it was met with silence. No sounds, no sign of the team, just silence. The divers thought about what it might look like, feel like, to raise their heads above the water and see the young boys and their coach dead. They pushed these thoughts from their minds and pressed on. They would worry about the boys' health statuses after finding them. They scanned the rocks with their flashlights, hoping for any sign of the boys. How far down the cave did they go? But finally, they saw something. One by one, the boys and Coach Eck rounded a bend in the chamber out of the darkness and came towards the divers. How many of you? John asked. They're alive, Rick shouted. Thirteen, said Duel, the only team member who spoke English. Brilliant, said the divers. Rick and John told them everything. What day it was, that the seals were on their way, and that they would soon be saved. John told them, quote, You have been here ten days. You are very strong, very strong. We come, we come, end quote. We are hungry, Duel replied. 
I know, I understand. We come here tomorrow. We hope tomorrow. Navy SEALs will come tomorrow with food and doctors and everything. Have a light? Here, we'll give you lights. We are happy, Duel told him. We are happy too, the divers replied. Beyond all hope, all 13 were still alive. Just skin and bones, but they were alive, smiling and seemingly healthy and in good spirits. But from the second that the divers saw them, they realized they now faced a new crisis. How could they possibly get these skeletal young men out? Could 13 frail young men with no diving experience at all, much less cave diving under the most hazardous conditions, undertake the journey? That night, six Thai SEALs and Dr. Lahernshin, who had received SEAL training but later became an army doctor, loaded on their gear and made the trek to the boys. 23 hours later, they finally returned, but totally exhausted. They had each used more air than they thought they would, trying to reach the boys, so only a few had risked the route back. Even seals in peak physical condition could barely complete the dive. Getting 13 people out of the cave was going to be difficult, but getting them out alive was an entirely different challenge. At 10 p.m. Monday, July 2nd, the local Thai governor made an announcement to the world. Quote, we found your kids healthy, alive, end quote. The press burst into cheers. But on top of the good news of locating the boys came horrible news. Meteorologists were reporting that worse weather and an even bigger storm was on the way. Now that the 13 boys had been located, three possible plans quickly emerged for bringing them out. Option one, the most cautious was to leave them where they were Ferrying in food, medicines, and company for four months until the rainy season ended. By then, they could easily walk out or be carried out of the caves during the dry season. But most considered this idea mad, seeing as how the caves were nearly impassable for even the most skilled cave divers, how could they ensure that they'd be able to reach the boys continuously during the season? Option two was to keep up the search on the limestone hills and try to find a drilling point. Yet the hundreds, even thousands of people walking the hills, assisted by local guides, were getting nowhere. And finally, option three. Option three was to dive the team out right away. But this option posed many complications. None of the team had any diving experience. They talked about getting full-faced masks for the boys to help negate any problems, but since some of the team was as young as 11, it would be difficult to find masks that fit them without any leaking. A leaking mask could mean that the boys panic, and panic almost always leads to death inside caves. They needed these inexperienced, young, starving, weak boys to dive 1.5 miles, or 2.4 kilometers, through the caves. For this last option, the chance of complete success of bringing all 13 people and the divers out alive were grim. 
On Wednesday, July 3rd, help came from an unexpected source, Elon Musk. Between his large budget and the staff of highly skilled engineers at his disposal, Elon Musk and his team began working on putting together a small submarine-like chamber to help carry the boys out of the cave. By Thursday, July 4th, three SEALs and Dr. Lahern Shin were now living in Chamber 9 with the boys and Coach Eck. Friday, July 5th, at about 1.30 a.m., divers were performing an air supply run, bringing in tanks of compressed air. After being gone for more than 13 hours, one diver emerged, saying his diving buddy was near, but out of air. Minutes later, the body of retired Navy SEAL Lieutenant Commander Salmon Gunnan was pulled from the waters. In the extremely low visibility of the caves, Sergeant Sam had his regulator knocked out of his mouth and tried to grab it, or one from the other two tanks that he was carrying, but he couldn't find them. As he groped around in the darkness for his link to air, he slowly lost consciousness and drowned. Sergeant Sam's death highlighted the dangers of not only the cave, but also of using the inexperienced seals. Their training takes place in open waters, not in treacherous caves. He was a fit, brave, and skilled diver, but these caves are unforgiving. As time and rain continued, water filled more of the chambers. The 13 wild boars and now the four rescuers shared a cramped chamber. High water, confined space, and limited air is not a good combination. The air should be 20% oxygen, but by now it was only at about 15%. If that number drops to 13%, everyone would begin to experience some sort of disorientation. By 10%, they would faint, and by 6%, they would die. Diversion could temporarily hold the water back, but there was no obvious way to save the air. There was only one choice, the very worst choice. They had to dive the team out now. The first challenge was figuring out how to get material, like the dive equipment for the wild boars, through the obstacle course to the supply center in Chamber 3. The Beijing Peaceland Foundation had special expertise that put them in charge of this assignment. Zhou Yaowei knew how to create complicated rope and pulley systems under difficult conditions, and after working 19-hour long days, a life channel of ropes had been completed. The sequence of pulleys allowed workers to clip tanks and other supplies and haul them into Chamber 3, rather than hauling them up through the narrow passages by hand. Supply runs were being sped up, and now more than 190 tanks were safely inside Chamber 3. A tag system was created for the tanks. A green tag or glow stick meant that it was to be used by a wild boars member. A blue tag or glow stick was air for the divers, and a red tag or glow stick meant that the tank was empty and should be discarded. After long, hard discussions, the cave diving experts came to a single conclusion. All 13 people must be totally unconscious for the return dive. That would prevent them from falling into any kind of panic that could make it impossible to return them safely. 
After discussing this with the Thai authorities, they received approval. After receiving this approval, Dr. Richard Harrison, an Australian anesthesiologist and cave diver, went back to Chamber 9 to discuss this with the team. He needed to know if each one of the wild boars and coach egg would agree. He would administer ketamine, a sedative that would put them to sleep for the entire three-hour journey. All 12 young boys and Coach Eck agreed to be put to sleep for the return dive. While preparing for this dangerous rescue, more food was brought into the caverns for the boys, and divers brought in waterproof slates so that parents and boys could share messages with one another before undergoing the dangerous route. Facing one last challenge before the dive began, rescuers knew that they could only take four people at a time. This would ensure the best outcome and would provide time for debriefing before rescuing more people. On Sunday, July 8th, 2018, now 15 days after first entering the caves, the return route was finally ready. Cave divers Rick Stanton, John Volanthan, Jason Mallinson, and Chris Jewell reached Chamber 9. The first wild boar got in his wetsuit, fitted with a buoyancy jacket and full-faced mask, and jumped into the water to test the seals. Dr. Harrison again asked for consent to put the boys to sleep. Knight, Nick, Note, and Turn all agreed. They were the first to be brought outside the caves, going in order from largest person to smallest. Since the rescue team was waiting for the proper mask size for the smallest ones in the group, the largest boys would be brought out first. Coach Eck was determined to see all the boys rescued, and he stayed back to make sure that he was the last person to be brought out of the caves. Now asleep, Jason grabbed the boy and entered the water. He held the boy face down so that if any water entered his mask, it would be drained away from his face. The diver must keep the boy as close as possible to his body because bumping him into something could mean dislodging his mask or denting the equipment. As Jason approached Chamber 3 with his sleeping package, he tugged on the guideline. A team member in Chamber 3 felt the tug and messaged on WhatsApp to the team ahead of them, quote, fish on, end quote. This simply meant there's a fish on the line, which meant that someone was coming. And 15 minutes later, Jason emerged with his sleeping passenger from the water. Members of the U.S. pararescue team rushed forward to take the teenager from the diver's hands and checked his vital signs. He's breathing, they shouted. Moving forward, they slipped the boy into a green plastic rescue stretcher, and it was attached to a rope and pulley system that would carry the sleeping boy over the boulders inside the chamber. After this, he would be checked again and then passed to another diver who would then take him to the cave's entrance. As day one of the retrievals ended, the impossible rescue had gone impossibly well. All four wild boars were alive and breathing. Thirteen ambulances had been waiting outside the caves, and now the four boys were being rushed off to the hospital so they could check their status. Everyone gathered for a debrief at the end of the day. What had gone right? What had gone wrong? What could be improved? And what did they have to be on alert for that they had missed? They covered every single detail. 
U.S. military major Charles Hodge told the team, quote, Now is not the time to get complacent or overconfident. We went four for four. We hit a home run, but we can still improve, end quote. Monday, July 9th, Boo, Dom, Duel, and Mick were the next to leave the caves. Planning, training, and the weather thankfully held. By now, Elon Musk had reached Chamber 3, and his mini-submarine was delivered and ready to use. However, after yesterday's success and the minimal testing the submarine had, the rescue team decided to continue with the system that they had created. After yet another impossibly well rescue day, all four members of the wild boars were successfully removed from the caves and transported to the hospital. So far, eight of the 13 people had been rescued. Tuesday, July 10th, Ek, Titan, Mark, T, and Pong were still inside Chamber 9 along with three seals, Dr. Lahernshin and Dr. Harris. Bringing the rest of the group out meant that one diver would need to complete two trips. Jason Mallison would make the second dive, and once the team was gone, the SEALs and Dr. Harris would dive themselves out. By now, there was zero visibility. Between the rescue efforts, such as discarded wires and tubes, kicked up silt and muddy waters, a diver couldn't see the sharp rocks until he hit them. One hit could dislodge a face mask. Each diver had to clutch his silent player as close as possible to his face, cheek to cheek through their masks, shielding the boys with their own face and bodies. Fish On came through WhatsApp in Chamber 3. So far, the rhythm had been the same. Message, then tug, then about 15 minutes later, a diver and his sleeping partner. 15 minutes passed, no tug. 30 minutes, 45 minutes, something was wrong, 60 minutes. Chris Jewell was the least experienced out of the British divers. This was his first cave rescue, and in the rapid currents between chambers four and three, he tried to move his sleeping player from one arm to another, letting go of the shot line for just a moment. But that was all it took. He lost the rope. He groped for the line in the pitch-black waters. Not here. Not there. He took a deep breath. Don't panic. Don't rush. You'll only make it worse. In this type of water, a light doesn't make a difference. Many divers simply leave their lights off and work purely by touch. Chris lost his only guide rope, and now he's trapped with a sleeping person whose life is entirely his responsibility in cold waters with no light. He stopped and tried to think, feeling around. Finally, his fingers found something solid. Not a line, but an electrical cable. He followed it, hoping it would take him to chamber three before the cold waters chilled the boy or the sleeping drugs wore off. Chris had guessed his route, but Chris had guessed wrong. He was pulling himself back into the cave, away from the entrance. Feeling an air pocket above him, he broke the water surface and saw that he was in chamber four, nowhere near the helpers or the guide rope. As suddenly, Dr. Harris also appeared, coming forward from chamber nine after all the divers had left. 
The doctor took the wild boar member from Chris and headed towards Chamber 3, and Chris followed right behind him. With the help of the American pararescue team, the Australian doctors, the British and international cave divers, the Chinese rope and pulley specialist, the Japanese irrigation experts, Thai seals, water pump workers, policemen, cooks, barbers, farmers, students, map makers, and government officials, Ek and the 12 boys finally made it out of the caves 17 days after they had first entered. Apart from a few cases of mild, easily treatable pneumonia, all of the boys were healthy. While parents of the wild boars had to wait before they were able to see their children in the hospital, they gathered together and drew a photo of the retired SEAL, Sergeant Sam, who had lost his life during the rescue. They wrote messages of gratitude to Sergeant Sam and made the most solemn pledge. If their boys came out of the hospital alive and well, they would all be temporarily ordained as Buddhist priests, which is not unusual in Thailand. By training in the monastery, they could earn spiritual merit, which they would then donate to Sergeant Sam so that he might have a better rebirth. On Thursday, July 19th, Eck and his team were released from the hospital. Eck announced during the interview, quote, I would like to begin by saying that I really appreciate all that everyone has done for our sakes. We will live our lives in a mindful manner. We will be more cautious before acting." End quote. As soon as the British divers had found the boys and began considering how to rescue them, they emphasized one word, collaboration. They knew that only the most complete team effort might possibly work. Although the events were quite tragic, the world worked together during this time to help rescue the team. For they were not just Thai or stateless boys, they were humans in danger. People across borders and waters banded together to save the trapped, scared team. Everyone dropped what they were doing and stepped up to the task, and with the excellent collaboration of nations around the world, the entire team was brought out of the cave alive and well. In Australia on July 24th, the Governor-General of Australia awarded the Bravery Medal to the six Special Response Group divers and the Navy Clearance Diver who supported the diving operation in the cave for having displayed considerable bravery. Cave divers Dr. Richard Harris and Craig Challen were awarded the Star of Courage for displayed conspicuous courage, and all nine were awarded the Medal of Order of Australia for service to the international community through their specialist response roles. On July 15, 2019, Drs. Harris and Challen were named Australians of the Year. In Thailand on July 13, 2018, the Commander-in-Chief of the Royal Thai Navy, in a letter of commendation, posthumously promoted the Lieutenant Commander former Navy SEAL Salmon Kunin who had died on July 6. On July 14th, the King of Thailand awarded him with the Knight Grand Cross of the Most Exalted Order of the White Elephant. In the United Kingdom on July 24th, 2018, the Prime Minister hosted a reception at 10 Downing Street with the Thai Ambassador for the British Cave Rescue Council divers and personnel involved in the rescue. In November of 2018, the British Cave Rescue Team were given the Pride of Britain 2018 Award for Outstanding Bravery. 
On December 28, 2018, seven British members of the rescue team were honored in the 2019 New Year Honors. Rick Stanton and John Volathan each received the George Medal, and Chris Jewell and Jason Mallinson received the Queen's Gallantry Medal. Rick Stanton, John Valentin, Dr. Richard Harris, Jason Mallinson, and Chris Jewell were the first ever recipients of the Medal of Valor from the PADI organization. PADI stands for the Professional Association of Diving Instructors. On January 5, 2019, the Asian Football Federation awarded the Wild Boars a two-year support program which provided the club with technical support and training equipment and 100 molten match balls a year. Three of the boys and their coach were invited to the 2019 AFC Asian Cup to watch Thailand versus India match on January 6, 2019 as guests of honor. If you'd like to learn more about the rescue operations, multiple books were written on this topic. And the 2019 film, The Cave, was written and directed by Thai-Irish filmmaker Tom Waller and features many of the real-life cave divers as themselves. In November of 2020, Variety reported that a film titled 13 Lives would start filming in Queensland, Australia in March 2021. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. I'm your host, Alex, and if you have any questions about this week's episode, you can head over to our Instagram page, at NarcosisPod, or the Discord server. If you want to support the podcast, there's always Patreon or sharing this podcast with a friend. The Patreon is just $3 a month, and for the price of one coffee, you get access to a lot of perks such as voting on what to hear next, exclusive updates, a shoutout at the end of the next episode, and 10% off merchandise. Thank you to my newest patrons, Michael W. and his son, Ben W. As always, your support tremendously helps the podcast, and I'm very grateful to have you both on this journey with me. Thanks again, and I'll see you all next week for another episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. Thank you.